Well, hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us again on the PCICS podcast, the go-to podcast for pediatric cardiac critical care. My name is Deanna Zanatos. I'm a cardiac intensivist at Norton Children's Hospital in the University of Louisville, and I'm also one of the co-executive producers of the podcast. Um, Today, we are speaking with the best abstract winners from the neonatal ICU ECMO category from the World Congress that happened recently. We have Dr. Dr. Uh, Arabella Stock and Amy Kiskadden, who are currently at All Children's, and they did a great study and presented their findings at World Congress. So thank you all so much for joining uh, me today. I'll let you start out and just introduce yourselves. Tell us a little bit about your background, um, your role at All Children's, and then we can go ahead and talk a little bit about your project. So I am Maravella Stock, and thank you, Diana, for inviting us to this. It's a pleasure for us uh, to be here to share our experience. I'm Maravella Stock. I am a cardiac intensivist, and I um, direct the quality and safety for the Heart Institute at Johns Hopkins All Children's. Uh, and clearly, some of my interests lay around uh, quality and safety and pain and sedation. And I'm Amy Kiskadden. I'm a pharmacist in at All Children's in St. Pete. My role has been in the cardiac ICU, but as I think expanded out to include most of the Heart Institute at this point. Um, I also am an assistant professor of pediatrics in the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine. So I have some research as well that I've been participating in and um, very passionate about collecting the data finding what it is saying, and then being able to share it. And um, that's what led to this project when Dr. Stock and I uh, merged our ideas and interests and data and sharing. And that's how we came to with the current study, which we'll be speaking about today. Amy's been a great partner in this. Uh, One has an idea, the other one has another idea, and it's been a great merge of ideas and great works. That's great. So the title of your abstract is Dosing and Outcomes of Ketorolac Administration in Neonates Following Congenital Heart Surgery. So tell us a little bit about sort of what sparked your interest in doing this study. So part of what sparked the interest is that we've through a series of um, looking at developing clinical pathways and ways of managing our patients, um, we had been looking, one of them had to do with like sedation and analgesia in the post-cardiac ICU setting. Um, Dr. Stock has done an incredible amount of work with this over her career um, and had actually put together already a pathway in place um, that included pitorolac and other non-opioid analgesic agents. Um, And so what we thought as we were talking through this, because we actually have used it down into the younger age population, we started to say, well, we should really begin to collect this data because there was uncertainty about what was in the literature currently. Can you use it? Should you not use it? What patient population can you use it in? Um, What dosing are you doing? And so we wanted to collect the data that we had gathered and seen um, and begin to find what the um, results were from more of a safety efficacy um, standpoint. And for me, at the time, I was going through um, a clinical research training track and so became my study in actually setting up a prospective um, type of a study. So this was ultimately has served as our baseline data for that. Our podcast has all different types of listeners from different backgrounds. And so can you just briefly sort of summarize what some of the concerns were with using Ketorolac in this age group? 
I mean, as you know, the biggest concern for neonates is, in general, for anybody less than six months of age, is renal dysfunction, bleeding uh, related to platelet dysfunction. But mainly, especially in the higher uh, STAD categories, more complex surgeries, neonates, um, the biggest concern is how much will uh, impact the renal function. And so we set very specific criteria for initiation of Ketorolac um, within our pathway, and that's kind of what helped us essentially uh, develop the project. Thank you for that. Tell us a little bit about what you studied and what you found out. So our primary outcome was really to describe the overall Ketorolac dose and then the dose regimen. So we wanted to see if what dose the patients were getting, how frequently they were getting it. Um, in neonates specifically, we would give them up to 48 hours. We wanted to see, are they getting it for a full 48 hours? Or are we stopping it? Um, that was really became the primary outcome, was really just describing what our dose was that we could see in a very descriptive manner. And then we um, aligned our secondary outcomes to be more safety-focused and efficacy measures um, in a retrospective format. So secondary one was de decline in renal function. Um, that was defined by the Cadigo guidelines. Um, and then major bleeding was defined as the uh, International Society uh, for on Thrombosis and Hemostasis. They have a criteria for bleeding, which is a standard universally accepted definition. And we also used a more recent study by Niels and colleagues who defined bleeding in the pediatric critical care setting. So that became our secondary outcomes. And then we used an efficacy measure as well. Specifically, we looked at pain scores and the overall opioid requirements following Ketorolac initiation in these patients, at least just be able to describe what we were seeing as far as our patients and what they were um, what they were requiring. So if I may add one other thing that sparked sort of this study was that uh, since we restarted the program in here, there's been a great push to uh, early extubation. And what I mean, I, early extubation, neonates of any kind of complexity or stack category, including Norwoods, which makes it difficult. The post-operative management becomes difficult in terms of, of achieving proper analgesia, keeping the patient comfortable, and yet not cause respiratory depression. So this was another thing that we sort of, it sort of helped us guide this project, this pathway, trying to see if we can truly minimize the opioid usage. Excellent. And you were um, doing this study in the context of a pathway that you had implemented for postoperative pain management? So I had developed uh, a few years back before I came back to All Children's, I had developed a pathway at Cornell where I was the medical director of that of cardiac ICU there. We had developed a pathway for analgesia and sedation. In the PICU and the cardiac patients with one of my counterparts from the pediatric intensive care side. And in that, we actually, I had introduced the idea of using Ketorolac in neonates 30 days or less. And this was a great way for me to continue that in here because we already had some baseline data showing that it was pretty safe, but I needed more numbers. So this was an excellent continuation, a segue into the bigger project. One of the things I really like about this is that you drill down on the neonates and you have patients from all 
stat categories, like almost an equal number. So um, it looks like there were 34 neonates in this study. So all less than 28 days, right? Yeah, correct. Okay. So tell us what your what your outcomes were. Tell us what you found. We would like to take a moment to thank this episode's institutional sponsor, Johns Hopkins Children's Center. The nationally ranked Johns Hopkins Children's Center is the birthplace of pediatric cardiology and the historic Blue Baby operation. From birth to adulthood, the Blaylock Towsick Thomas Pediatric and Congenital Heart Center treats all patients with congenital and acquired heart disease. Our comprehensive congenital heart program provides the full spectrum of care for patients and families, including congenital heart surgery, heart transplantation, and ECMO and VAD. Our 12-bed cardiac intensive care unit is the only one of its kind in the state of Maryland and offers comprehensive cutting-edge procedures for treating pediatric heart disease. We provide comprehensive advanced cardiology services, including pediatric cardiac catheterization, complex heart rhythm problems, pediatric cardiac anesthesia, congenital heart surgery, fetal cardiology, general pediatric cardiology, and cardiogenetics. Our pediatric cardiologists provide services in 10 different locations in the state of Maryland and additional locations throughout the national capital region. Well, what we found was that, as you mentioned previously, there was a bit of a blend between the overall stat categories of patients. So it wasn't just stat ones and stat twos. It was actually a mixture of the patients. Most patients were getting as anticipated, the 0.5 millimeter per kilo dose, most of them all got it every six hours. I think where we did see some difference was in the patients, whether they got it less than or equal to 24 hours, or if they got it for a total of up to 48 hours. So the majority of the patients, about 85% of patients received the Katorlock anywhere from a total duration of 24 to 48 hours, but there were about 14, 15% that received it for 24 hours or less. Um, the other thing we found is that we don't start Katorlock, as Dr. Stock mentioned, until chest tube output is a certain rate as well as we make sure platelets and creatinine are good. So most patients didn't initiate on Ketorolac until about nine hours, um, I believe was the median following admission to the ICU following surgery. So that was the main primary outcome as far as the dosing and what, and what we what we were able to gather from um, our retrospective data poll. Um, with regards to serum creatinine and urine output, so that's how we really looked at our renal function. We used, again, the Kadigo guidelines for defining that. We use serum creatinine because, honestly, that's what, avail- was what, a- what is available here. So we had to go with what we could use at in our institution. To try to balance that out, we looked at urine output as well. Although, um, I will say our urine output remained above three mLs per kilo per hour and went far above that in the 48 to 72 hours post-op, most likely related to the heavy diuresis that on the patients received. Actually, I will say, just to clarify, we actually do not push diuretics in the first 24 hours that much. So we just, I think it's also surgical technique, speed, time on bypass, cross clamp. So I think we benefit of that we actually, uh, I will say that that has been a big benefit that our patients come up pretty, pretty tidy up, mm-hmm. nicely packaged, uh, not a lot of bleeding, actually just about what dries up within a few hours. So that allowed us to very easily introduce Ketorola yeah. within six to eight hours. And like Amy mentioned, about nine hours, but, uh, and this is not a correction, it's, we try not to push the diuretics. The diuretics come into play about 24 hours, just where do we come? We actually have it on the abstract. Yeah. Right? 
it was like 24 to 24 to 4 half for discontinuation of the Katorlak is where we started to see that increase. So at that point, it would be 72 hours post-op. But well, there was no significant change in the serum creatinine. I think baseline, which would be pre-cardiac surgery, was a median of 0.43. And then within 48 hours following Katorlak initiation, the median creatinine was 0.49. And then even up to... 48 hours following discontinuation, we actually saw the same creatinine fall back down to a median of 0.39. So we didn't observe any significant differences within the renal um, function, and no patient met the actual criteria for AKI. No, no, I think that that's it's actually a very good description of the findings. And I think that, again, during those 48 hours, we never saw a drop in the creatinine. As you know, as most people that would be listening to this podcast, these neonates tend to go into AKI within 12 to 24 hours post-op. So their urine output is decreased. Uh, we were able to actually continue the ketorolac and not experience any side effects from it, even with those four, within those 48 hours. Yeah. And it doesn't sound like, you know, some programs do uh, early PD or something right. like that. It doesn't sound like that's your practice. No, not at all. As a matter of fact, most of our patients do maintain a reasonable amount of urine output the first 12 hours. Not the most robust. Again, we are not very aggressive with diuretics, but they do diurese nicely after 48 hours. Um, and again, with that being said, we still were able to use Ketorolac safely for 48 hours. Yeah, that's wonderful. And any um, bleeding events in any of your patients? I think there were a total of three, I believe, but they were, so again, this is based off of a retrospective chart review, but nothing that met the major criteria or the criteria defined by Nielus and colleagues as being major or severe. Most of it was blood noted on the dressing. Um, there was one patient who had a GI, but it ended up being related to a stomach a perforation to a gastric perforation. Was not, yeah, it was an actual an, an NG cause gastric oh, yeah. and not a gastric like an ulcer or anything of that sort. But no, nothing beyond um, wound or blood noted on the wound dressings. The chest tube output was, I believe, 0.9 mLs per kilo per hour averaged over that 24 hours in the first 24 hours and then actually decreased down to 0.4 mLs per kilo per hour. So minimum chest tube output following Katorlak initiation. Um, so nothing... Nothing significant, I guess, to say major that we could report. Yeah, no, I think the major one was truly what Zemi mentioned was the gastric perforation. The other two were almost like attending discretion, level of comfort. I see a little bit of oozing or the creatinine just changed. There was a slight change, but, and that's fine because I think uh, we had to get buy-in from the group in order to continue this. Um, yeah. And I think that now we actually, in the, initially we um, jumped through some hurdles. Uh, there was, there were concerns, legitimate concerns. Some of my colleagues never used Ketorolac below uh, 28 days of age and the level of comfort. So we had to kind of prove that this was safe. Yeah, so much importance around opiate sparing um, and how we can treat these babies with medications that they're not going to have withdrawals from and that we're going to be able to have them awake and moving and participating in, in 
all the things that they need to be doing to get better. So I think that's wonderful. One question that I thought of as I was hearing you talk is, did you use any other adjuncts like either oral, rectal, or IV Tylenol along yeah. with the Ketorolac? Okay. Is that part of your yeah. pathway? So we do. We have a 24-hour, the first 24 hours or until they take PL with IV Tylenol, and then it goes to enteral or rectal Tylenol. And we use it for both intubated and not intubated patients. So we have a pathway that sort of distinguishes towards uh, extubated or intubated and would plan to extubate within six hours or within 12 hours or longer. So if they were to remain intubated longer, then we would use a combination of hydromorphone or morphine. And I think that that's the other part that we really aimed of not using fentanyl. And I had some historical data from this program, when we used a lot of fentanyl, the utilization of fentanyl was much higher prior to this. That's great. So we use a lot of hydromorphone. We rarely use fentanyl. Okay. But yeah. Just to add on, they, they pretty much get scheduled IV, Tylenol, Ketorolac. We switched the Tylenol over. And then depending on, as Eric, as Dr. Stock was saying, what, you can go on. <laughs> what, um, what they're on, they'll get like a PRN. Uh, opioid like uh, morphine, for example. Yeah. Okay. Wonderful. And so it sounds like you guys have continued some of this work. Do you want to give an update on what's been going on since uh, you sent this into World Congress? Uh, yes. Yeah. So we um, did some additional data collection on a group of patients. I think we're close to 40 patients, 40 neonates now. Um, that we've went ahead and has been submitted as a manuscript. We're in the process of doing a prospective study on this at our institution. So. Okay. And the prospective study is is comparing what? Um, it's going to be prospective with obtaining some um, biospecimens as well. Um, to okay. be able to, yeah, we won't be able to, we won't do comparative because um, we won't, because of our clinical pathway, we will just have the one group, but there's some additional clinical data that we'd like to obtain. Um, and so that will be helpful to have. In real time. Awesome. Yeah, yes. we've seen good success with minimum opioid exposure. I think the patients within 72 hours of Ketorolac were getting zero morphine equivalents of opioids. Overall, I even like 24 hours post-op, it was like 0.2 milligrams per kilo every day. So it's just very small. So I think we're excited to see how this can continue to make strides. Yeah, I think it's wonderful work. And and thank you for helping us all feel a little bit more comfortable with using Ketorolac in this age group. We have started to inch in that direction and, and I can definitely tell a difference. Um, just even anecdotally at the bedside. So right. thanks for, for doing the work and putting it on paper so that we can feel good about it. Thank you again, Arabella and Amy, for taking time to present your work. Congratulations on your World Congress showing. And thanks to all of our listeners for um, listening to our podcast. We hope you've enjoyed it. Please don't forget to follow us on X, Facebook, and Instagram. And please subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Please visit our website, pcics.org, where you can find more information about how to become a member and enjoy updated info on educational resources, meetings, job listings, and much more. The song, I Don't Know by Grapes, was used under a Creative Commons 3.0 attribution license.